Last week I made a mistake and uh, was talking about an inscription over the dome of the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was a mistake because the inscription is actually over the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. that says, one law, one God, one element, and one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves. God has a heart for this world. But most of the people in the world don't know a thing about it. They are uninformed. Now, fortunately, there have been through the centuries strong leaders who have given the church a wake-up call by boldly declaring God's truth that he invites everyone to join his family. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about the gravity of another world. We start out in this world kind of in orbit around this world. But when you become a Christian, somehow you develop an ability to break the gravity of this world. I like the way Paul says it in Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 11. The Bible says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. You see, you trade this orbit around this decaying world for one around the kingdom of God. You still feel the gravity of this world. It still pulls. It still tugs. But friends, when you become a Christian, the kingdom of God should become the dominant force in your life. There's a window of time where we have opportunity. Opportunities arise, but there is a time when those opportunities end. Your last opportunity passes you by. And that last opportunity kind of sneaks up on you. You don't see it in advance. And then if you miss it, you miss everything. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Matthew, the 25th chapter, as we study together today. Matthew, the 25th chapter. And we're looking at some of Jesus' parables with this theme that they talk about a gravity, a gravitational pull of God versus the gravitational pull of this world. And in Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, I want us to see three truths in the story of the wise and foolish virgins. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And the first truth is the second coming of Jesus is inevitable. Some 318 times in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back. 318 times. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament says Jesus is coming back. In fact, Jesus was so concerned about it that in Matthew, the 24th and 25th chapters, he tells four stories in a row with the same message. And the message is judgment is coming. Prepare now. Judgment is coming. This is the window of opportunity. Grab it now. Now, ironically, he uses a wedding party 
to illustrate this. So let's look at Matthew, the 25th chapter. The Bible says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, these are Jesus' winding up words. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You know, sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand. And sometimes the Bible is easy to understand. But I think a fifth grader could read this story and tell you what the big idea is. Jesus is coming. Get ready. Prepare. Fred Park of Berea, Kentucky tells the story of a man named Quill who lived in the mountains of eastern Kentucky and he was always hunting and fishing illegally. Well, it made the game warden angry because he never could catch the man. So one night... The game warden camped out on a hillside near Quill's cabin in the woods, about 20 or 30 feet away. He was going to follow Quill early in the next morning and then arrest him when he hunted or fished illegally. Well, the game warden nearly froze to death that night, and early the next morning, he heard Quill moving around in his cabin. He began to smell the brew of coffee. Bacon frying. The game warden's stomach started growling. And then Quill came out onto the front porch and he called out. You might as well come on down and get some breakfast. I know you're out there. You might as well come on down here and eat with me. Well, the game warden couldn't believe it. He came down off of the hillside and went inside the cabin. And he asked Quill, how in the world did you know I was out there? Quill said, I didn't know you were out there. I just do that every morning just in case you are. (laughs) Now, to be honest, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And the fact that he hasn't come back yet in 2,000 years has made a lot of people think that he's not going to come back. But Jesus compares the kingdom to a wedding banquet. How grim it would be to miss that or worse to be excluded. Now, back in Jesus' day, a wedding was much different than in our day. The wedding process would go through three stages. The first stage was the engagement. 
Now, the engagement stage of a marriage was usually arranged by the parents. That sounds like a great idea to me. The parents got to choose the spouse for their kids. I like that idea, don't you? And all the parents said, amen, yeah. That's the way it ought to be. Often this was arranged in childhood. The second stage was the betrothal. This would happen a little later when the players were old enough to decide whether to get in on this deal or not. In the betrothal stage, there was a formal agreement, the taking of vows. And from that time on, the couple was recognized, regarded as husband and wife, even though there was no physical union involved yet. This was a preparation stage. The third stage was the wedding itself. And in those days, it was a big party. In fact, it was a week-long party. But the interesting thing about the wedding in those days, the star of the wedding is the groom. Now, have you ever heard anything so weird in all your life as that? In our weddings today, the groom is kind of like a candlestick holder, isn't he? He just kind of stands there. He's a piece of furniture at the wedding. And I say to the groom, you've got three jobs at this wedding. Show up, stand up, shut up. And if you're the father of the bride, pay up, right? But back in the day, it was the way God wanted. It was the groom's day. Typically, everybody came, the whole village. And the custom was for the groom to show up at the bride's home and surprise her at some point during that week, and the wedding would take place. Can you imagine that today? She was supposed to be ready all the time. She had to be ready. And he tried to catch her by surprise. Now, as an accommodation, the best man would go through the streets shouting, the bridegroom is coming. You see, it was a parade and a party all rolled into one. The girls would go through the streets with lighted torches. So it was a big celebration. Laughter, singing, torches, friends, big party. And it still happens over there today. Now the bridesmaids would go to the bride's house and wait for him to show up. And the bridesmaids had two jobs. Dress beautifully and carry torches. It would be bad form to go through the streets without a lighted torch. But there are several points in this parable. And this represents that. And it's in your bulletin. So follow along with me. I want us to kind of all participate in this part of the message. I want you to participate because it's easy for one thing. Okay, I'm not going to give you a hard, a hard job. But I want you in your mind to fill in the blanks and allowed to fill in the blanks. First of all, in this wedding, the church is what? The bride, right. The bridegroom is Jesus. He is coming back for his bride. Now, the next one is a little bit difficult. The runner in the street. 
thank you. Who said that? Is us. Did you say that? You're right. Spoken like a true preacher's daughter. The runner in the street is us. Seldom does anybody get that. The wise bridesmaids represent the people who are ready. You won't get the next one. Even the preacher's daughter won't get the next one. The oil represents faith. Faith, belief, connection. And the foolish bridesmaids represent everybody else. You know, if the runner in the street represents us, the foolish bridesmaids, those who are not ready, everybody else. Did you notice there's a long list of excuses why they were not ready? No, you did not recognize that, did you? Why were they not ready? The reasons are irrelevant, aren't they? Because on that day, if you are not prepared, it's too late. Ruthanna Metzger was a professional singer. Several years ago was asked to sing at a very wealthy wedding. The reception would be held on the top floor of the Columbia Tower, the tallest skyscraper in the West in Seattle, Washington. She and her husband Roy were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful brass staircase that led up to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs followed by the guests. At the top of the stairs was a maitre d' with a bound book and he greeted the guests. May I have your name please? I am Ruth Anna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruth Anna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruth Anna replied. I'm the singer. I sang for the wedding. The gentleman answered, It doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, Show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables, magnificent ice sculptures. An orchestra was preparing to perform. The musicians all dressed in white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruth Anna and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them in, and then pushed G for garage, parking garage. After locating their car and driving for several minutes in silence, Roy reached over. And put his hand on Ruth Anna's arm. Sweetheart, what happened? Well, when the invitation arrived, I was busy, Ruth Anna replied. I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without giving an RSVP. Ruth Anna started to weep, not only because she missed the most lavish banquet she had ever been invited to, but also because suddenly she realized 
and had tasted a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and see their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The second coming of Jesus is inevitable. It's going to happen. The second subsequent judgment is a reality. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 27, the Bible says, Man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Now, if you ask the foolish virgins why they didn't prepare, what would they say? They would probably say, I don't know. Because, you see, most people, most people don't rebel against God. They don't rail against Him. They just drift through life in orbit around this world. Now, there are a few atheists. There are a few serious atheists. Like I mentioned last week, Ron Reagan, at the end of that commercial for the Freedom From Religion group, he said, I am a lifelong atheist, and I am not afraid to burn in hell. There are a few like that. Back in the 1960s, the United States and Russia were in a race to the moon. Remember that? The Russian cosmonauts and the United States astronauts were competing uh, to see who would get to the moon first. And Titov, the Russian cosmonaut, said, I looked outside my spaceship and I didn't see God. W.A. Criswell, a Baptist preacher, remarked, I guarantee you if he would take one step outside of that spaceship, he would have seen God. (laughs) But subsequent judgment is reality. But third, since the second coming of Jesus is inevitable, and since judgment is a reality, we need to be encouraged to prepare to celebrate with God. In Acts the 17th chapter, the Apostle Paul was speaking at Mars Hill in the book of Acts. He was speaking to a pagan people. But in the 31st chapter of Acts 17, Paul said, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus didn't say, I know the way, or I've heard of the way, or I've seen the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Peter would word it this way when he was preaching after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension. Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul would later on say, there is no other gospel than the one I preach to you. There is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other gospel. Jesus is the only way. And if the choice is heaven and hell, I want to encourage you to prepare. There is a final exam, isn't there? The ornithology class of a particular college had a reputation for being particularly difficult. Now, ornithology is the study of winged creatures, study of birds. They had studied bird calls, mating habits, food selection, 
migration patterns, wingspan, flight range, just about everything that you could study about birds. But when the students walked into class for the final exam, they were not prepared for its approach. The professor had lined up 30 birds, stuffed birds, standing on pedestals with sacks over their bodies so that only their legs were showing. The test had one question. Identify all 30 birds and tell of their distinctive habits. Well, after a minute or so of stunned silence, one young man slammed down his pencil and shouted, This is ridiculous. Nobody can identify birds just by looking at their legs. This is stupid. Here, here, the professor said, We don't tolerate that kind of rebellious behavior in this class, young man. You flunked the course. What is your name? The young boy quickly jumped up on the desk, pulled up his pants legs up over his knees, and said, you tell me my name. (laughs) Every student knows there is a final exam. And every one of us should know that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day. There is a heaven. And there is a hell. And there is a hurry. And Jesus told four stories in these two chapters of Matthew 25, 24 and 25 to illustrate that. He told a story about a thief in the night. The people who lived in the house would have prepared if they had just known that the thief was going to show up. But the thief showed up in the middle of the night. He told the story of the bridesmaids here. And then in Matthew, the 25th chapter, he told two stories about servants who are given resources, and then the master returns suddenly. Every one of these stories makes the same point. Prepare. Right at this moment, you are one heart attack, one blood clot, one drunk driver away from judgment. Remember a few years ago, Steve Irwin, 44, the crocodile wrestler, died in the water when a stingray punctured his heart. He had wrestled alligators, rattlesnakes, but it was a freak accident at 44 years of age with two little children on top of an entertainment empire. Do you suppose that that day when Steve Irwin got into the water that day, Do you think he expected to get out of that water in eternity? Here's how to be prepared. Number one, admit your sin. You probably all know this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. There is no one who's righteous. There's no one who's deserving. Second, believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only one who can save you. He is the only one. We talked about that, didn't we? One gospel, one name, one way. At first glance, there's nothing unusual about the Evergreen Cemetery out in Oakland, California. There are rows of markers, flags, flowers, but on a hillside of that cemetery is a three-foot-tall headstone 
And on the headstone are inscribed these words in memory of the victims of the Jonestown tragedy. Well, probably just about everybody in this room knows what we're talking about. Because beneath that headstone lie the remains of 409 Californians who heard the call of Jim Jones, a self-proclaimed Messiah, who followed him to South America in 1978 to build a complete paradise, a utopia, a perfect society, a harmonious community. They put their complete faith in him. But when the U.S. government began investigating and threatened exposure of Jim Jones for repression, rape, violence, Jones ordered U.S. Representative Leo Ryan and journalists with him and other dignitaries, investigators, shot and killed before they could get aboard a plane to come back to the United States and blow the whistle. Then Jones issued the now famous command to drink cyanide-laced punch. Syringes were used to squirt the poison into infants. Those who refused were shot. Jones died himself from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. But over 900 Americans died that day in a mass suicide in Georgetown, Jonestown, South Africa. The bodies of 409 of these victims were flown to the Evergreen Cemetery where they were buried. Few people come to visit those graves. But those graves, those graves on that hillside stand as a reminder. Beliefs have real consequences, don't they? What we believe matters. What we believe matters. Faith is only as good as the one in whom it is invested. Third, confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Confess Jesus. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, women, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Now, I talk to a lot of people, you probably do too, who want to be a part of the church. They want to slip in and slip out, but they don't want to take a stand. They don't want people to know a lot about it. They just want to quietly believe without having to let a lot of people know about it. Really? Are you that way about your spouse? I don't want to wear this ring, but I want to be married, but I don't want to wear this ring. That wouldn't work, would it? February 2006, Abdul Rahman was sentenced to death by the Afghanistan government because he converted to Christianity. It's illegal in those countries to be a Christian. And he was sentenced, Abdul Rahman was sentenced to execution because he confessed his faith in Christ. In March, knowing the consequence, Abdul stood before cameras in front of the press and courageously said, I am a Christian. He held up his Bible for all to see and said, I am not afraid to die. Now, thankfully, outside pressure forced the charges to be dropped and Rahman was able to flee the country. 
Are you willing to confess Jesus as Lord? And then finally, demonstrate your belief by repentance and baptism. Demonstrate your belief by repentance and baptism. The apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, less than two months after Jesus died and rose again, when people asked, what shall we do? How can we respond? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. The Apostle Paul would explain in Romans the 6th chapter, verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Jeff Walling is a popular uh, preacher. He's on staff at Pepperdine University out on the West Coast. But he's a popular, has been a popular speaker for youth act activities and for adults as well. But he said, Brother Johnson, his home preacher, wanted baptism to resemble a death, burial, and resurrection. And so when he baptized people, he said, Brother Johnson didn't say, I baptize you, and with the formula, and then lower them in the water... He lowered them in the water and then said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By this time, people are on their tiptoes to see if the guy's coming back. And the guy wonders if he's going to make it, but eventually the guy comes back up out of the water, gasping for breath, grateful that he's alive. Now, this church does not do things that way. But we want to be obedient to the formula that's been given to us, handed down to us through the Scriptures, the infallible Word of God, to call things, Bible things, by Bible names, and to be true to the Scriptures. And so, the simple invitation is, if you need Christ and you want Christ, it is to respond to Him in faith, to understand that you have a repent, repentant heart. To be willing to confess Christ in front of other people. And to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity that we've had to be here today. To sing. To praise you. To participate in worship. To lift up the name of Jesus. Because we know that there is no other name given by which we must be saved than the name of Christ. And Lord, if there is anyone here today who has not named him and claimed him as a Savior, we pray that that gravitational pull would act upon their lives and pull them right into obedience. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.